All right, I'm going to ask you to uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be there in just a little bit. Uh, and if you were here with us this morning, we started off on this kind of uh, process of talking about what does it mean to make distinctive disciples. And uh, that means that every single person here that we are in different places, spiritually speaking, right? And so we want to start thinking about how do we help uh, get each other to that next place, knowing that. Uh, if we're all in different locations, different places, different sets of path to get there. Um, and so in your opening there in that, that little section, it says, Generalized approaches can never adequately address distinct disciples. In order to see legitimate discipleship take place in your life and in the lives of those around you, we cannot depend upon widespread methods hoping to address the specific needs of everyone. And so what we're going through as a church family is the next two months, on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and different opportunities also for you to get. If you're a lady, there will be some small groups Bible study that's going to happen on uh, Thursday mornings and Sunday nights. We're going to unpack some more of this and also some opportunities, but we're going to kind of also look at it a little bit more because what the goal is, is for every single person at the end of this that you would walk away and say, I at least have a game plan for my personal growth. Uh, where you are and how to do it. Now, I use this kind of an analogy real quick in the service today, but just as a reminder, if you think through it, um, all of us got to the same location here tonight. We made it to the Fellowship Hall. You made it to uh, Rocky Creek, uh, and that's a wonderful job, but we all came through a different path, right? Um, some of you, if you think through, you took a right or left out of the driveway. Some of you took, uh, it took you 10 miles to get here or less or more. Um, some of you, when you came in, the church was on your right side. Some of you, when you came in, the church was on your left side. We all came through different paths, but we all got at the same location, right? And so the thought process is this. Every single one of us right now, the goal is heaven, right? We're going to get there. We're going to get one day we finally see him face to face and we get to experience everything that we've been longing for. But the path of our own growth and sanctification is different for every single one of us. And that's why we're going down this uh, direction for us to look at what are the specific areas. And so when you see in that first little section, it says consider uh, to answer the following questions. And so what I want us to do um, tonight, we're going to do a little bit of sort of interaction around the table uh, because you've had to listen to me talk a whole lot today. Uh, and so, But I want to give you some teaching stuff, but also to, to think through this. Here's the, the thing I want you to do in a first um, uh, quick, uh, quick uh, section here. If you look at these first three questions, number one, I want you to write the, the answers to this down. Um, number one, who first introduced you to Jesus? Was it a pastor? Was it your dad? Was it your mom? Was it someone who's just recently? Who is the person that was instrumental in you really knowing who Jesus was? They shared the gospel with you. So I want you to write down a name or maybe a couple of names there. Um, Number two, how many years have you been following Jesus? So if you became a Christian um, a week ago, you would say, I've been doing this about one week, right? Some of you would say it's been a little bit longer than a week. I've had a few years on that. How many years-ish would you say that you've been following Jesus? I want you to answer that um, real quick. And, uh, and now what I want you to do is at the table... Really, really quick, not taking a whole lot of time. I want everybody, uh, if, if you feel comfortable, at least at the table, would you answer those two questions out loud? So I would say, okay, first person to introduce to me to Jesus was be my mom, and then my pastor, and I have been following Jesus now for 31 years. Okay, so that would be my, my story. Okay, but real quick, around your table, can you answer that? The person that has the brightest color shirt on is going to start tonight because they feel really bold. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. Real quick, as a way of survey question, really quick, how many of you, uh, was it a family member that first introduced you to Jesus? Raise your hand. Okay. Look at that. Wow. 
Awesome. All right, how many of you would say it was a friend? Raise your hand. Okay, great. How many of you was it a pastor? Look at that. I hope y'all noticed this. Family members? Did you just catch that? The friends and the pastors were such a small amount. And for everybody else's family, I'm telling you guys, every single one of us have a legacy to leave. Every single one of us. It's an important thing you think about family members. So, so in this room, a whole lot of us, first person to introduce us to Jesus was a family member. I'm not saying they were perfect at it. I'm not saying they should have gotten an honorary doctorate degree in it. I'm not saying they did everything perfect. But they did maybe put some of those initial steps in there. How many years have you been following Jesus? All right, let's do this. How many of you have been following Jesus for five years or less? Raise your hand. That is awesome. We are so glad you guys and gals are here. That's awesome. Five years or less. All right, let's just do this real quick. If it has been uh, five to ten, raise your hand. Ten to twenty, raise your hand. Twenty to thirty, raise your hand. Thirty to forty, raise your hand. Forty to fifty. Fifty plus. All right, you guys are doing okay. We are what? So thankful for you guys as well on the other end of this, right? All right. So now with this, if we think through it, we all come from a different place. We've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And you think that tonight I can give you one thing that all of you go, oh, that's exactly where I am. The answer is, yo, can't you give us Jesus? Yes, I'm going to do that, right? But every single one of us, there's certain elements of our own walk that we need to hear about right now. It's different from every person. Every person around the table, they might could benefit tonight if I say, let's go to Philippians 4, 6, where it says, don't be anxious for anything, but go in prayer and supplication. And you'd say, oh, all of us need to hear that. Yes and amen. But some of us really need to hear that tonight, right? You're anxious about the future. You're overwhelmed by it. And so right where you are right now, you've got to learn how to pray and not be so anxious. And so this is why it's so important to think that we are evaluating tonight the distinction of where we are. That number, question number three, do you have a hopeful turn to come about soon in your spiritual journey? You're not going to share that at the table, but if there's something you're hoping is going to happen, I would just love for you to write that down right there. It's just for your own personal note-takings. But something that you're saying, you know what? Uh, it might be something as simple as this. I want to read through the Bible from, from front to back. I want to, I want to do that. Or some of you would say, I just want to stop doing this. Or maybe you want to go on your first mission trip. What's something that you would say, I, man, I just hope this happens here today. I had one of uh, some great conversations after services this morning, and somebody came up to me and said, the only way I know how to say this, and I'm going to apologize, Pastor, but I just got to confess, I have been a very horrible person lately, and I need help. They didn't use the word horrible, though. They used a word that I probably should not say here in the church building right now to do this. He goes, I'm sorry, I'm saying it this way, and I go, thank you for being honest. And they're going, I'm just not where I need to be. I know that I should be here right now, but I, I'm right here, and, and I, I need help to get to that place. All of us are in some way there. And so when it says, even in these simple questions, we process a simple truth. We are all in a different place spiritually. We each have unique turns that we need to make in the near future. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at a wonderful passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 4. Um, this is obviously right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has left the disciples and said, I want you to wait uh, for the power on high is going to come in. What was that power they were waiting for? What was his name? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and came in power in an incredible way. And all of a sudden they were able to speak in tongues and mean that people who spoke a different language outside could hear the gospel. God did some miraculous things. And all the Jerusalem, they're thinking, man, we just got rid of Jesus and now... Here's a bunch of little Jesuses running around. That's what it felt like. In fact, you know what the word Christian means? Little Christ. Little Christ. 
Why is little Christ running around? We thought we just had one. That was trouble there. But now we got a bunch of them running around doing all kinds of stuff. And, and so what happens is that they start doing the things that Jesus was doing when they were alive. These Pharisees were thinking, we thought we got rid of them, and now he keeps, they keep coming back. So look what happens uh, in, in chapter 3. Well, incredible thing uh, happens is that there's a lame beggar that comes up to these guys, and, and Peter and John are getting ready to go to the temple to have a time of worship, and there's a beggar there, can't get up, and he asks for money. And Peter goes, we don't have any money, we've given it all away. But what I do have, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. That man got up and walked, and it says that he followed them into the temple. And he was leaping and shouting and praising God, probably doing some somersaults and jumping jacks, you know, who knows what, you know, cartwheels, just so excited, I can walk again. And it was obvious that all of a sudden, this wasn't on the order of worship for today, right? Okay, here comes this guy, and he's just so excited, so overwhelmed, that he's, he's making such a big attention to himself, and, and they don't know what to do. And so eventually, um, when people start getting a lot of, uh, start watching, and, and they ask Peter, what happens is, Peter gets up and stands up and gives a little sermon to him. He goes, oh, you wonder why this happened. Let me tell you why. Uh, well, the, the same Jesus that you crucified lives inside of us now. And he's doing this power. Well, that didn't sit too well with the Pharisees. And so what they do is they pull him to the side. Look at uh, verse number one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, just side note, that's an important thing to know. They were not upset, honestly, that this guy got healed. They were upset that he got healed in the name of Jesus Christ who had risen from the grave. That's what they were trying to stop. Because they were trying to silence this movement of Christianity. And so the problem was they were greatly annoyed because they were, Peter and John were saying, no, 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 Jesus got up. And they were trying to snuff that rumor out, trying to quiet that thing down. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So now the church is about 5,000 people in a few weeks, okay? And so even, even in this, they're getting arrested. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, look at this, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, there you go. Peter, now, wait a minute. This is the same Peter that a few weeks ago, a teenage girl said, now don't you belong to Jesus? He goes, oh, no. <laughs> right? scared and cussing and all kinds of stuff, get away from me. And all of a sudden, a few weeks later, what has gotten into this man? Holy Spirit had. He had seen the risen Savior. And so he goes, look, you can kill me if you want to, but guess what happened the last time you killed somebody from our party, right? He got up. So go ahead if you need to do this. Let me tell you what's going to happen. He says, this thing's going to continue to go forward. And he just tells them straight up, if you're wondering where this power came from, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. It's, it's from Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but guess what? God raised him from the dead. 
And he's alive today. He's living in us. And this is why this is going on. And so these guys have a boldness that is unlike anything else. In verse 13, this is absolutely beautiful, descriptive verse about these men. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with what? Jesus. Now, I don't know about anybody here today. Some of you would probably feel like you feel uneducated and untrained. Can I get an amen? Okay. I, I, for most of my life, I always feel like I get in a room with a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me and saying all types of words that I got to look up later, but I would look them up, but I don't know how to spell them. You know what I'm like? There's just, there's so much there. And I, and I feel so often uneducated, untrained. And this is some of you, I've got some seminary degrees. And yet there are some times I go, I'm just not prepared enough. I don't know enough. And in this, he says, but the difference this time is verse 13, that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished because they thought, nobody should be able to speak like this unless they've been to our school, <laughs> right? Nobody should be able to do the type of things that we do unless they're from our denomination. <laughs> this, is, this is tribalism at its finest, right? It's like, unless you're part of our crowd, it ain't going to work. And so they were just astonished. Wait, they, did they graduate from your school? They didn't go to my Bible study. I don't know whose book they've been reading, but what in the world? These guys, I don't know. It's like they remind me of somebody. They remind me of somebody. And we thought we silenced him, but we realized this. We can't quiet Jesus Christ up. Not even from the grave, he speaks. And so they were astonished, and they had a simple thing. They recognized one thing about these guys. They've been with Jesus. It's obvious. Now here's a good question for all of us here. Could anybody recognize that about us? That you and I have been with Jesus. That we walk with Jesus. That we go, mm, I know who you've been around. Now, um, any of you ever had that moment where somebody came up to you and they looked at your face? or maybe something you were saying, and they assumed who your family member was. You had that moment? Are you such and such boy? Oh, you look just like your daddy. And you're like, do not tell me that, <laughs> okay? Or some of you say, oh, no, 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 you look just like, and you, you've had those moments because the family resemblance is so strong that you just, it, there's no way, every, people who know your parent, they, they know that child. I'm here to say this. You got another thing that's even stronger than DNA running through your veins if you are a, a person who follows Jesus Christ. Your father is God Almighty. And something, some kind of family resemblance should be popping out in you. And they go, I don't know everything about you, but I do know this. I know who you've been around. I know who you belong to. There's something different about you. You remind me of someone else. And, and the prayer is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what the prayer is that we, that we want to happen. Now, when, when I put this up here, it says, not only did Jesus make a complete difference in the disciples, but he also made a specific change in each one of them. So, so here we go. We got Peter and John at this moment, just a few weeks after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they are bold on a whole other level of bold. In fact, I mean, like they, we haven't even seen this, but yet there's also something unique about each one. If you go on from verse 13, look at verse 14. I love this description. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. By the way, that's just a great way to live, that God's power is working so much in your life. You just want to keep your mouth shut at that point because they go, how, how are we going to argue with this? Look what God's doing. Look what God's doing. Verse 15. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We just can't. We, we try. It ain't going to work. <laughs> you try, to, try to keep us, you know, our mouths zipped here. It's just not going to work. Jeremiah ch- uh, uh, chapter 20 verse 9 says it this way. Jeremiah was at a place where he was so broken and so overwhelmed about the persecution following the Lord. He said, if I try to keep my mouth closed right now and I say, I'm not going to talk about you anymore, Lord, because all it does is bring me pain. Inside my bones, it becomes a burning fire and I can't endure it. I can't endure it. It's like it's got to come out. Peter says, you can give us all the rules you want to. We're not going to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. He's been too good to us. He's changed us. We cannot be quiet anymore. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. They're not praising Peter and John. They're praising God. Verse 22, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They go on, they get released, and they're so excited. Another time they get arrested for something else, and you know what happens to these disciples? They're literally celebrating as they run from the prison cell, limping from the pain that they've been hit with, going, thank you, God, that we are counted worthy to be uh, dishonored and suffering for your name. Now, what in the world happened to these boys? Where, where, Where were they a few weeks ago? Think about the difference that took place. And so he made a difference to all these disciples. You can look through those original um, 11 disciples, if you take Judas out of that, that batch, and how they all die. They all die independent of each other. They all die going to the grave saying, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And they say, we'll kill you if you keep preaching that message. And you say, come on with it, because he's alive. We'll crucify you if you got to. Peter even said this, you cannot crucify me because I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. That's how that man died. Now, what's happening to these guys? Like, what is making the change? And while we go, well, it's the Holy Spirit, I say absolutely yes and amen to this, but there's also something specific that happens. And so on, on your page there, it says, it has a little column there of Peter and John, and it's got pre-discipleship and post-discipleship. Now, what I want us to do, we're going to look at these verses together, and I'm going to want you to just, um, if you want to turn there with me, you can. I'm going to be turn it really quick, but looking at some of these verses, and there's so much thing, but if Peter and John are these guys in Acts 4, I kind of want to see what their life was like at the beginning and what their life is like in Acts and to see what took place here. In Matthew 16, verse 21 and 23, as you're turning there, we're going to notice something very unique that happens. And for those of you, you remember as we walked through the Gospel of Mark last year, um, this moment where uh, Jesus comes up to his disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah, some of you say Jeremiah, some of you think it's another prophet, John the Baptist from the dead. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, God's, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your father who is in heaven. And I'm telling you, on that statement, I'm going to build my church right there. And then he begins to say this. What's interesting, the next thing, look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke who? 
the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh yeah, that's going to be wise, right? Okay, so he just said, Jesus, I think you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now can you come over here for a second? I need to rebuke you. You're not thinking straight. Let me, let me clarify what, what you just said here. He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me. Hey, yeah, yeah, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So get this point. Jesus had just named Simon to Peter, because upon this rock, he was going to build that church on what he just said. And within a few moments, now he's not calling him Peter anymore. He's got another nickname for him. It's called Satan. <laughs> now, why would, why would Jesus call Peter Satan at this point? Because Satan was the first person who tried to change the identity of God. When God wasn't turning out to be who Satan wanted him to be, he tried to alter it and try to take his place. Now, what is Peter doing? Jesus, you're going to do what? I think, I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Son of the living God. Well, this Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to suffer, get beaten, arrested, and die. And Peter says, that's not the God I want to follow. Let me come here. Let me tell you something. It's going to be different. So, so right there, you just write down, okay? Peter didn't like suffering, right? Just somewhere along that side, I know there's no last section there. You turn over a few pages... To chapter 26, this is when Jesus is being arrested. He's just been arrested. Matthew 26, uh, 29, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. A servant girl. I say 69, my bad. 69. Um, 2669, that's right, that verse there. He was coming alongside you also with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. A servant girl approaches a freestanding citizen and says, Aren't, don't you belong to one of him? And he denies it. He's scared to death. Why? Because he doesn't want to do what? He don't want to suffer. He don't want to die. He don't want to go to prison. He knows what's happening to Jesus back those walls. So Jesus is, I mean, so Peter is scared of suffering. Turn over to John 18.10. John's going to tell the same story. He's going to tell it in a little bit different way. John 18, 10, when you come along and then Jesus has just been arrested, all the disciples are there in the garden with him, including Judas. And look what happens when a mob scene comes on Jesus and his disciples. What the fisherman does now. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, why, why would I bring this up? So when the potential of persecution comes against Jesus and his followers, what does Peter do? Take out a sword. Uh-uh, this ain't happening to us. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm not, I'm not getting arrested. <laughs> I'm not going down. No, no, no. And, and so people go, wow, Peter was bold to take off that guy's ear. No, he wasn't. He was trying to take off the guy's head, and all he got was an ear. Okay, he's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman, right? This is all he, he just kind of goes for it. He gets an ear out of this. But what does it show about Peter? He's scared to death to suffer. He does not want to suffer. At every time he has an issue with Jesus, it's because Jesus is saying, my path is the way of suffering. And Peter says, I don't want anything to do with that. That's pre-discipleship. But Jesus kept working on that boy. You realize that? For all the boneheaded things that Peter said, Jesus kept investing in him. Post-discipleship, after walking with Jesus, after the Spirit coming into his life, look what happens in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, 
turning on. Once again, after the, the event that we just read about, Acts chapter 5, verse number 29, the apostles have just been arrested again for preaching Jesus. And it says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now what? So you mean to tell me that you're you're standing in the room with the men who just killed Jesus, and you used to be scared to death to even be close to that room. And here you are saying, you killed Jesus and, you, and, we, and God brought him back to death. What are you going to do to us? Now, now, follow this. Peter wrote some letters to the church. Look over at First Peter chapter 2. When you get to the letters that Peter would write. Now, if I, if I were to ask you that if you had to write a letter to the people that you care about the most and to tell them the most important lesson that you've ever learned in the faith, what would your single theme be? You ever thought about that? Like, what would it be? Some people would say, well, I would, I would tell people that God is their father, or God is faithful, or, or God is a redeemer, that he can take the broken things and make them good again. That might be your theme. You know what the theme of 1 Peter and 2 Peter is? Learn how to suffer well. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> suffer well? This is Peter writing this? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now that's one verse, but if you read that entire book and you read Second Peter, you know what it's all about? Suffer. Suffer well. Don't suffer for being dumb and doing sinful things. Suffer for doing the right things. So you mean to tell me that follow this distinctive mindset. Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, all right, Peter, so what is your big issue right now? You're afraid to suffer. And so what did Jesus start doing? He honed in right there. And by the time of after Jesus has been discipling him for three years and now the Holy Spirit in his life, guess what you see Peter standing up and preaching about more than anything else? Suffer. Suffer well. Now that, that's Peter, so probably the same thing happened to John, right? Actually, John goes through a whole other metamorphosis, okay? I want you to look over and now turn over to the left and look at Mark for a second. Mark chapter 3. When we get over here to John, uh, John had a brother named James. This John, uh, just by way of reminder, John is not John the Baptist. This is John the Apostle or John the Disciple. Uh, he wrote the book of John. He wrote First and Second, Third John. He also wrote Revelation. That's that John we're talking about here, okay? And when he's first called as a disciple in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, look at the names. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of what? Now, I don't know about you, but there's a certain type of people, if I were to say, oh, these are the sons of thunder, <laughs> I, in my mind, think about what kind of people they are, right? <laughs> Loud, <laughs> obnoxious, walk into a room, and it's just always just, you know, just they're, they're rough guys, right? That makes sense. James and John are fishermen, kind of rough around the edges. And so Jesus calls them, those are the sons of thunder, man. It's like they just come out ready to start something, right? Some of y'all are like, I just found my new nickname, okay? Right? But sons of thunder, that, that's the idea. Look over at chapter 9, see what, what's happening with the son of thunder. Why would Jesus give this word, these, these names, to, to John and James? Chapter 9, verse 38, John said to him, 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> that just funny? <laughs> I can imagine Jesus going, so you mean to tell me somebody was demon-possessed, and they got him out, and you're mad because they don't roll with you? Exactly. You get it now, right? Yeah. That's what we have a problem with, Jesus. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, by no means lose his reward. So here's John. He don't want to let anybody else in the circle, right? That's not the elite crowd. This is the son of thunder. Now look over to Luke. Take a right turn over to Luke chapter 9. Let's find another incidence we find of Oh, John. If you if you still are not convinced why Jesus called these boys the sons of thunder, you're about to find out. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now this is funny, y'all. Jesus, did you hear they don't want you to come in there and preach? Jesus, do you need to do something for you? <laughs> yeah, John, what do you want to do? Do you want me to call down fire and just blow them all up? <laughs> Jesus go. Yeah, go for that, John. Just show me, show me how to do that real quick, right? Son of Thunder, right? Don't accept our message. Blow them up. No, no time to mess around this riffraff. You, you're either with us or you're against us. You're not going to follow us? Blow them up, Lord. Just blow them up. Burn them all up. Because we get it. They don't. Just blow them up. Now, that's pre-discipleship John. Then John had a little change of heart. Can you imagine that? Look at John chapter 19, what happens when he's been spending a little bit more time with Jesus, what takes place. John chapter 19, there are seven recorded sayings that Jesus says on the cross. We're about to give you one of them here. It's important. John wrote this book, and every time that he writes it, he never uses his name. Because in authors in those days, you kind of give a context clue to who the author was. And so instead of saying, John's writing this, he would say, the disciple whom uh, Jesus loved, which meant this. John, John and Jesus were best friends. Peter was kind of the ringleader, but it seems like John and Jesus were best buds. And, and they just had a special connection. They were just, they were just boys. And, and so what happens here, uh, in John chapter 19, we see one of the statements that Jesus makes on the cross, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me just ask you a question. If you were about to die and you got one person in your life to watch out for your mama, you're going to give her over to the son of thunder. <laughs> you don't want to take your medicine today? Just blow her up, Lord. Just set that fire, right? Do you, is, that, is that who you're going to give her over to? No. You're not going to do that. You're going to give your response. We know Joseph, his, uh, Mary's husband, has died. 
the brothers that Jesus had, obviously he, he goes, look, man, I'm going to give responsibility to somebody that I really, really trust with spiritual eyes right now. And at this moment, that's John. So John, from this point on. Now, I go, side, side note. If you've got the whole history, universal group of sins that are going to be upon your back and you are literally absorbing the wrath of God and you still have time to make sure somebody is taking care of your mama, that's a man. That is a man's man right there. Got the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders and says, hold on a second, John, I need you to take care of mama when I'm gone. Mama, from here on out, that's your son. John, from here on out, you treat her like your mother. You, you got me? You take care of her. That's just, that's something beautiful for me. I'm going to be honest. That's just absolutely beautiful for me. And yet, I know this. There are certain hands I would not trust with my mama. There are certain friends that I have. Hey, are there certain family members you would not trust with your mama? Right? Okay. No, not a chance. But he trusts John. What does that say? John's going to take care of her. He trusts. Now, look over 1 John. Look at one of the letters that he wrote. Uh, if you go through 1 John... There is a word that is repeated almost more than any other word in 1 John. It is a word called L-O-V-E. Son of thunder? What? We thought you were rough around the edges, John. How, how can you be talking about this? Uh, if you read this book, what is it about? Love. You can't love, you can't love unless you know God's love. Uh, 1 John, let's give you these verses here. Verse, chapter 4, verse 7. Behold, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Folks, so pre-discipleship, pre-three years of Jesus, pre-Holy Spirit, pre-all that work in John's life, he is rough around the edges. He doesn't have time for anybody who's not a part of the in crowd, and he's ready to blow up anybody who doesn't fall along. Three years of Jesus... He's a disciple whom Jesus says, I want you to take care of my mom. And what does he have? If he, if he can write a letter to anybody, God is love. You better love one another. Take time for one another. Don't push them too quick. Just love one another. Be patient over and over and over again. And I say this to go, here's just two, two character studies out of these disciples. I, I double-dog dare you to see every time that Philip and Thomas are mentioned in the Gospels and watch the thread there. Because there's some insecurities that those boys have and some of the other disciples early on and later on Jesus is hitting those square on the head. Why is that? Because Jesus knows that all of us need sanctification but all of us struggle in specific distinctive areas that he also addresses. He also addresses. So if you turn over the page here, here's what I want you to think through. Well, it says discuss uh, to take um, what have been the most essential elements in your spiritual life thus far. Here's, here's what I would want you to do really quick. I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to do this. But it says take a moment and make some bullet points the most essential elements in your spiritual life thus far. These items can be people, places, trips, or events. They can be positive or negative. So... For some of you right now, what I want you to do is I don't want you to write out a testimony. Uh, I don't want you to write out a paragraph form. I want you to hit just like little words, okay? So if I were to think through my story, I might just put down some really quick stuff. Single parent home. Uh, youth camp when I was 14 years old. Uh, you know, received the gospel at 7, right? But, you know, just, just real quick, just some things, some really pivotal things that happened in your life to make you who you are today. They can be positive, like you received the gospel. But also, I imagine for some of you in this room, some of the most negative moments in your life were also some of the most spiritually rewarding. You hit the wall here, something bad happened over there, and something happened. So why don't you, I'm going to give you about two minutes, and I want you just to jot down some things really quick. What are some of the most key moments, people, events, things in your life that have made you who you are today? 
So as you're writing that, those little moments down, some of you are probably going to kind of see a couple themes that come out. When you, when you see this little next section and, and continue to write down and stuff comes to your mind, and I'm even going to list out six things here in a second that may prompt you to go, oh yeah, this, oh yeah, this, that's fine. It says, now that you've written down these items, categorize what they are. Let me explain what they are, and then I want you to sort of literally, um, you can mark it with kind of one of these symbols here to the side. So that first one, that's a star bot event. Do you have a milestone when God changed your life? So is there a moment? I'm not talking about, well, I went to church every day. I'm, I'm not, no, no, no. Was there a moment where you go, life changed right here? It was a milestone, man. It was, it was something that happened that forever changed me. If you put up a milestone in, one of those, uh, in your list up there, I just want you to put a star beside it real quick. So if it was a single moment event, positive or negative, but it was something that happened to you, um, you got diagnosed with this, this thing, and hap life happened, you received the gospel at a revival meeting, a one-time event, something that changed forever, okay? Number two, environment. What regular faith gatherings shaped who you are today? So on your list, that's sort of a little clock there, but is there something that you would say, yep, I, w I went to a youth group that really inspired me and I grew because of the youth group. It was just a regular kind of thing. Or um, my story, one of the things I would say is, Man, I was in a Bible study, a weekly Bible study in my college dorm room that taught me about discipleship. It was just regular. You know, it was just, man, I was there all the time. I can't remember that, oh, well, that one Tuesday night, this happened. I just can remember that regular gathering of those guys shaped me who I was, okay? So if you have a moment like that, you're just going to put a clock there beside it. Some of y'all didn't know how much of an artist you were tonight, did you? Um, three is equipment. That's a little magnifying glass, okay? It's like a little tool there. But what spiritual disciplines train you to grow in godliness? Some of you, would you say, well, oh, man, I really started growing when I started reading the Bible. Or when so-and-so taught me how to pray. It was something that you just, you started doing something. It was a tool in your hand that helped you grow a little bit. Some of you may didn't think about that earlier, and you want to jot one down, and you're like, oh, that wasn't important there. Um, the biggest moment of my life that I would say that resulted to that, when I finally started memorizing scripture when I was an 18-year-old uh, college student in uh, Tokyo, Japan on a mission trip, when I finally started memorizing scripture, that was the single most life-changing discipline that I ever did because God's word became mobile in my life, and I could take it with me. And so that, that discipline, that equipment there changed me. Um, Number four, engagement. It's kind of an arrow down. How did you invest in another with what you learned? Some of you may have something on your list where that you went on a mission trip and you you started sharing your faith or you started teaching someone else or you led someone to Christ. That was a big moment in your life. You kind of put the arrow down. Um, and then uh, the next one is encourager, an arrow to the side. Who is that friend who walked with you towards Christ? Some, some of you have a relationship that you'd say, Man, this buddy, my spouse, it was a co-worker, and they were just so pivotal. They were an encourager, so they were side-by-side side with you. And that sixth one is what I call an example. The arrow goes up. Who is the example you aspire to follow? Does anybody on that list say, me and my mom was such a godly lady that I wanted to follow her, or my, my uh, college pastor when I was in college, and I went to this church, he was such an inspirational to me. So what I would encourage is, really quick, I want you to look at all those items. You probably... Every single one of the items you just listed finds one of those six words that goes along with it. I'd kind of be shocked if you were like, yeah, but I got a this and it doesn't uh, meet naturally. But most likely, all the things that you mentioned were either A, an event, a, a moment that happened, B, an environment, some kind of regular faith gathering that shaped you, um, three, some type of discipline that you put in your life, this equipment you started doing, four, an engagement, how you started serving in some way, five, there's an encourager that sort of walked beside you, and six, there was an example, somebody that was a little ahead of you. Now, do you see that in your list there? 
that mostly, probably most of the things that you put down falls into one of those categories. And, you, and so if you really think through it, you go, okay, here are all the elements that are going on. Now, here's what I want you to look at really quick at your list. What out of those six things aren't represented well in your list? Out of the things that first came to your mind, like I want you to look and say, okay, I don't have a star anywhere, or I don't have an arrow that goes up anywhere. Um, how many of you would say, as you look through, is there a glaring missing component on your list? Do you see something missing? I want you to just think about it for a second. Look at what's missing in here. How many of you would say, I didn't think through an event. I didn't put down an event. Can you raise your hand? All right, look at that. Most of you have an event on there. How many of you did not have an environment listed? Okay. How many of you did not have equipment listed? There was some type of discipline. Okay. How about uh, no? Uh, if you didn't have engagement, raise your hand. If you didn't have engagement, okay. How many of you didn't have? Uh, you didn't put an encourager down. Okay. How many of you didn't put an example down? Okay. So you see this, and when we go through this list, a lot of people would say, I had certain parts of this, but I'm missing a lot of things. Even in that example thing, if you put down someone that you looked up to, that was an, somebody example that you aspired to follow, here's what I, I want to ask uh, just as a survey time for a second. How many of you ever had an intentional person who said, I am going to disciple you? Or how many of you kind of, you, you kind of picked stuff up, but it wasn't that intentional? Does that make sense? Like, some of us would say, I think most of us in this room would probably say, I did have an example, but I don't know if they were really ever intentional with saying, my job is to form and develop and disciple you. It kind of happened by accident. So when I think through, when, when I told you this morning that there was a person in my life that said, has anyone ever discipled you? I said yes and no. I, I couldn't think at that point anybody who said, Travis, I'm going to disciple you, give you everything I got for the next little bit of time to grow you up. Now, were people doing that in my life? Sure. By accident, you know? Like there would be people who would tell me that I needed to do this or I would see their example. But there was also sometimes, follow me here. Have you ever had that person that um, I can think through, there was a, a man in my life that I thought he just had such a passionate love for Jesus. It was so evident. When he worshiped man, I just thought, man, I want to be as honest and authentic as him. And so I, I wanted to get close to that guy. You know what happened is that I started getting close to him and really wanted to know him a little bit better. And so one day I got invited over to his home to spend some time with his family. You know what I found out about that passionate worshiper? He was a horrible husband horrible. I mean, it was awful. Like, I was uncomfortable. I thought, do I need to walk out of the room? And this is normal. The wife's like, I'm going, is this really happening? Right? I'm just sitting there. And so, even by example, I was seeing certain things in his life that I wanted, I wanted to repeat, and some things I wanted to reject. Does that make sense? Like, I'm learning almost by, I don't want to be like that, right? And so, we have all these different components that make us who we are. Now, if you look at this list, what you're also going to find is that, that I think all of us would say, there's something possibly missing in your life. Some of you would say, I've never had an environment, a regular kind of reoccurring thing. As you said, I've never really been connected to a church. I've never been in a small group where I've grown a lot. Some of you would say, I've never really had that equipment where those spiritual disciplines, or I've never invested, or, or whatnot. And in fact, some of us, if you look at your story, what's so key for us is that we have to have a lot of those different components. Uh, Reuben came up to me after the second service today and said, someone told me uh, early on in my life that I needed to have a Paul, somebody that was kind of above me. I needed to have a Barnabas, somebody that was beside me. 
and I didn't have a Timothy, somebody uh, beneath me that I, I was teaching. And I thought that's a really good um, a way to think through it, that all of us need those relationships on all sides of things. But the goal of what we're doing, uh, and I didn't say this in the first service, and I, I thought about it later, and I did say it in the second service, but um, you remember that proverb, it's, a, it's an old Asian proverb that says, if you give a man a fish for a day, what happens? You feed him for a day, but if you teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, right? Now, here's the thing. Normally, when we come to church, what happens is, is that somebody gives you a fish. Hey, here's something to eat today, right? Here's something for you to, to nibble on. You go, that's good for the day. Problem is this. Few of us in this room have ever had anybody show us how to fish for a lifetime, right? Here's how you do this. And, and here's where I think that old proverb that I, I, I've loved for a long time, and when I say proverb, it's not in the Bible, it's somewhere else, but it's a, it's a good truth there, that when people say, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, the, the rest of that proverb needs to be this, and if you teach a man how to fish, you not only feed him for a lifetime, but all of his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and the whole village beyond him will also learn how to fish and survive. You know? That a lot of times we just think this has to do with me. I'm saying, you guys, we are a transfer of information and teaching and discipleship. What you learn here tonight, I pray you learn something, it would be a waste if it just sticks right here and you never share it with somebody. If you get one thing, one thing, say, who can I tell tonight? Oh, let me, let me teach you this. Let me just share this with you. Let me just, I, I learned this, let me, let me pass this down a little bit. And, and so the thought is this. If you teach a man how to fish, you not only feed him for a, a lifetime, but his kids are going to be okay. The whole village is going to be okay because you taught them a skill that can provide this. And here's the thing. If we start literally taking discipleship seriously, you know what's going to happen? Not only are we going to be able to teach each other how to, uh, to live for a lifetime, but generations from now are going to be different because of it. Different because of it. People that aren't even born yet will have a spiritual different direction because you start taking things seriously because you start moving it from this place to this place to this place to this place. Uh, I cannot begin to even imagine like what all that God could do. And so when we, we look at this last little section where it talks about evaluate where do you need distinct help. Uh, obviously this morning we looked at those Colossians 1, 27 through 29. And it says we find six guiding principles with which to make disciples. In the coming weeks we will unpack each of these further in order to create your specific plan. Here's the goal, folks. Um, we got about six, seven weeks from now. We're going to have something. You see those six words there. That my prayer is this: that every single person would say, "Let me figure out how I need to grow in the next few months." And as I said this morning, um, you can use this plan, this model, and it is good for an individual. It's better with a partner, but it is best with a mentor. It's good as an individual. It gives you specific, distinct things to start working on, but. I think it would be better if you've got a partner. It's absolute best if you've got a mentor, somebody who's pouring into you and saying, I want to teach you. Um, and so these six areas, I want to give you a few examples because when I, when I went through this quick this morning, just to sort of give you an idea of what this looks like. The delight word, when it says this in uh, Colossians 1, 27, 29, he says that Christ is in you, the hope of glory, we proclaim him. Here is the goal of this section. You have to figure out in your life what you're getting more joy from than Jesus, and you've got to dethrone that. That's what that's all about. What is it in your life that gives you just more unbridled delight and joy, and you've got to dethrone that thing? You've got to fight against it with everything. And here's the thing. It might be a good thing in a wrong position. That's, that's some of the most dangerous stuff. There are so many people who have a desire to be married. That's a good desire. The problem is they put that on the throne of their life. And all of a sudden, that, that they, they were trying to dethrone Jesus when that needs to be the spot. So, you, so the delight thing is this. 
Christ is in me, he is the hope of glory, he is my absolute wondrous delight, then you have to start saying, what is my joy? So it might be a person could be robbing you of, of Jesus being your delight. It could be college football, right? It could be some hobby. It, it could be good, good things. Hey, it could be the approval of others. You're working hard to get everybody else's approval. You don't even think about being approved by God. Like that, that could be the thing. So what is the source of your greatest delight? And you start unpacking that and start going, am I there? And you, you can find out if you are there by this reason right here, okay? If you think about following Jesus, do you feel like it's more of an obligation or an opportunity? Do you feel like it's more duty or delight? And if you start feeling like that you're doing all these things because you're supposed to, you may be doing it having a different delight than what you think you are. I'll give you this, this real quick example, and then we got to move on to these other ones. If my wife tells me, you know what, it used to be real special. You remember when you used to give me flowers? I went, yeah, when I was trying to get you to marry me, I do remember those days. Well, that meant a lot to me when you used to give me flowers. <laughs> well, now if I give them to you, you're going to know I'm giving them to you just because you said so, and it's not going to mean anything. So now I'm in a trap, boys. I'm in a trap. I don't know what to do. If I don't give her flowers, I might listen to her. If I do give her flowers, it's because she told me to do so. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go get flowers. Here, you are these, right? No. Are you happy? Now you got flowers. Does it make everything better? This is what you wanted. Now, now, now you go, now obviously you don't want, she doesn't want that. And I go, well, that's what we give to the Lord. Here's what I mean by that. How many of us tell ourselves, even if you don't feel like doing the right thing, do it anyway? Do what you're supposed to do, even if you don't feel that way. You think God goes, oh, thank you. You hate obeying me? It's miserable following my path rather than the world's path? Thank you so much for these flowers, Travis. Wow, that is so... It's a joy problem, folks. Some of y'all are being obedient, but you're being miserable, and God sees it. It should not be, I got you these flowers, honey. Hope you're happy. It's going... I get to give my woman flowers. I get to bring joy upon her life. And I'm thinking about it all day. There's a difference, isn't it? And so you've got to start getting your head, what is my motivation for following Jesus right now? What is it? Is it joy? Is it delight? Or is it duty? Is it obligation? Is it opportunity? So that's that B component. I'm just going to tell you, let's just prepare ourselves because I'm not ready for it next week. Number two, disobedience. What is the most dangerous, sinful leaning in your life right now? Is it greed? Is it lust? Is it selfishness? Is it bitterness? It, what, what is the specific area of sin and disobedience that is most dangerous? Now, all of us can sin in any of these areas, but I also know this. Some of you struggle in some areas very, very specifically. And you know what? I can tell some of you Hey, you need to stop having a bad temper, and you go, I, I don't have a bad temper. I'm not struggling that. But this area over here, whew, I need help. And so my go is, what's your plan? You think you're just going to get spiritual enough where it's not bothering you anymore, or are you going to fight? Like, when, when's the point where you say, I'm going to fight here? And, and so, so with this, this disobedience is this. You're not saying, here's all the 18 areas I've sinned over the last year. What's the one to two areas that are most dangerous for me right now, and I've got to attack them? i got to attack them. i got to hone in on them, and I'm going to get there. So at the end of that, you're going to have a, a one to two areas of disobedience you're going to look at. Three, doctrine. We're about to be done. Three, doctrine. What are the areas in your life that you feel like you need to know what God's Word says more than anything? 
So for some of you right now, you might say, uh, I just need to know the overarching story of the Bible. I've never read through it. Like, I, just, I don't understand it. Um, some of you would say, man, I, I kind of know some of the big things, but but here's, here's I, I mentioned this kind of in jest this morning, um, but if you have a chapter of the Bible or a book of the Bible that you avoid like the plague, that might be a good sign. That might be something you need to unpack one day. There are certain things that I'm scared to think about in the Bible. I just want to go there. I had one this week, not going to lie. I, I was struggling. I was, I was doing some prep, thinking it through. We're going to uh, go through Malachi after this series is over. First, I know I want to get in the middle of that book. I do not want to get the first part of that book. You know why? Because it says this. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. God, did you say that? I just like to skip over that verse. In fact, I thought about skipping over it when I preached through it. And then something happened the other day that I saw something, and all of a sudden it starts coming unpacking it. And here's me wanting to avoid certain verses and finally go, oh, I just saw it. There it is. It makes total sense to me. And I'm going, some of you got that area in your life doctrine-wise, belief-wise. Some of you are struggling right now. What does the God say about marriage and sexuality? You need to nail that down. You need to go after it. You don't need to skirt around it or wait till the culture tells you what to believe. You need to get in the Bible. And so that may be the issue. You say, okay, doctrinally, what, what is that one issue I need to go on? Number four, development. How do you need to mature? How are you going to mature in Christ? So some of you right now, you say, there's just simple maturity stuff that I need to do. I need to know how to handle my finances in a God-glorifying way. No one's ever taught me how to do that. And you need to go there. Some of you need to learn how to work really hard at your job and, and, and to, to learn a craft. Some of you need to learn how to employ the spiritual gifts that God's given you. Some of you need to learn how to be a husband or a wife or a mother or a father. Or you just go through different stages of your life and say, let me mature. Let me grow up in these areas. Number five is discipline. This is what is that next spiritual discipline that you need to work on. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite books uh, outside the Bible is a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. And he gives about 12 chapters of spiritual disciplines that you do. It's like reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, praying, fasting, giving, all this kind of stuff. You know what the problem is when I read that? I get overwhelmed at how bad off I am in all of them. This is what I want you to do at the end of this time. You pick one spiritual discipline that you're going to work on really, really hard. What's the next one for you? Some of you would say, I just need to learn how to read the Bible on a regular basis. Some of you would say, when I pray, I start daydreaming and I drift off. You work on that. Some of you say, I sort of got that down. All right, it's time to get to fasting. Some of you go, I go back to prayer. <laughs> okay, you know, but you just start. What is that discipline that you can work on? And the last one is dependence. When he says that Christ mightily works within us, uh, through us, um, he, here's the thing, the dependence is this. What are you praying for to happen in your life? Specifically praying, praying for your own growth. This may be something as it relates to you. This may be something outside of your control. But what are you praying and saying, God, I'm dependent upon you for? And so the goal of this is within these six little steps, these six issues, what you're going to have at the end of it is you're going to have six things you're going to focus on for a span of time. Once again, good as an individual, better with a partner, best with a mentor. And so as we're going to go in the next few weeks, you're going to start developing a guide of things that you're going to work on and see the Lord uh, work through you. So y'all ready? Okay, that was really bad. I mean, are y'all ready to get going and not be like the way you've been stuck for the last few years? You ready to start moving? Okay. So, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit. And as we start thinking through the change that you made in Peter, the change that you made in John, we want to see that kind of change in us. Where you look at maybe those areas that are issue, are uh, lacking in our lives, and you start addressing them, and you start working on them. So, God, we're not going to skirt around these issues that we try to avoid. We're going to hit them head on. Uh, we want to see growth in them because we know that you call us to make disciples to make disciples. So, Lord, as we start 
part as a church, start developing a plan for our distinctive uh, plan for how we're going to grow. God, I pray that you would do mighty things, that we would be making disciples who make disciples, and that generations yet unborn and nations yet to come that we haven't even got to yet will feel the effects of what happens when we start making disciples here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.